I do not remember a time when I did not know about Jesus. I grew up in a family that um, not only went to church every day, but knowing who God was and knowing um, the story of salvation was something that I just always knew. And some of my earliest memories are of my mom reading her Bible out in her rocking chair early, early in the morning with her coffee. Um, and of my father leading Bible study with my mom. They led an adult class together. And so church and and the gospel was something that was ingrained in me from um, my earliest days. Um, I came to know Jesus pretty early, although I wasn't baptized until my early teen years, which I think is good because it helped me. I knew what I was doing when I became a Christian. Um, and I knew, I'm, you know, I'm not exactly sure when, but later on in my high school years and early college years, I knew that I was going to do some sort of ministry. That that was always something that I felt um, sort of called to do. I didn't ever feel a call to preach. Um, I, I don't think I ever felt that, but I always sort of knew that somehow that I was going to um, be involved in church, be involved in ministry of sorts. And one day I sat in front of a um, 20 year old guy in biblical archaeology and archaeology in the Bible. That was the class that we set in. Um, and he, we quickly got to know each other. And I found out lo and behold, that he was wanting to be a pastor. And um, we told each other within like the same day, I said, well, I'm going to graduate school because I know I, you know, I know I want to be a professor. And he said, well, I know I want to be a pastor. So I always tell people because I hear stories about pastor's wives who husbands like change trajectory on them and all of a sudden throw them into this role that they never had any training for and I'm like well you know I knew I knew pretty early on that if I stayed with him that that was my destiny um, so I knew what I was I thought I knew what I was getting myself into so. hey everybody welcome back to mystery misfits we're here. It is still season one, although season one is coming down to a close, which is hard to believe. I know. It's been, it hasn't been a full year even for myself being on here coming in right. towards May, but technically August. But yeah, this time last year, season. this time last year was when I was buying the microphones because we had all that nonsense going on in Washington and in the churches and everything. And Greg finally said, do it. So. It's been about a year, so we can, you know, happy birthday. Woo! Yeah, almost celebrating um, that one-year anniversary. That's right. Closing out the year strong here. That's right. Season two will be coming in April. We're going to take the month of March off, although we do have a couple special things that will be going on that we're going to talk about here in a couple of weeks. But first, today we have a very special guest. We've been, we've been teasing her for uh, a couple of weeks here, both teasing in terms of letting you know and then we've been having some sarcastic conversations on Twitter. Um, we have Dr. Beth, Beth Ellison Barr with us today. She is the professor, a per, history professor there at Baylor. Um, she's also the associate dean of graduate studies there at Baylor. She's also a pastor's wife. She's also a very controversial author at the moment, which is part of what we're gonna talk about. <laughs> and both of us have something in common in that neither of us are from Chicago. Although- That is true. Although I am from Illinois, yeah, I am not from close. Chicago. Yeah, so many hats. Any other hats that we should add on there? For me, oh yeah. my gosh, I have no idea. Yeah, I wear. And you know, I'm a faculty in residence. I live with undergrads. 
Um, nice. So that's actually, yeah. So like my morning commute to get to my office was just walking across the, the big quadrangle <laughs> at Baylor. So, yeah. yeah. So today we are here to to discuss why well really we're here to discuss why you're here we're, we're here to talk about church history we're talking world history though and we are talking about how all of this actually matters theologically even when we're not studying it theologically which is a little teaser for your book also um which we'll, we'll talk about that after the break but um, let, let's just start, ask the question, why history for you? Why, why did you go into history? Oh my, that is such a, you know, nobody has ever asked me that. That's <laughs> wonderful. I've done so many podcasts. Nobody has asked me that. Um, so actually, this is a little secret here. When I was in high school, I was a, um, I was in journalism. That's what I actually did. And so I was like the editor of the newspaper and I won awards at state for, you know, writing, um, feature writing, especially. And so when I started looking at colleges, my original intent was to go into journalism. And um, one of my very first conversations that I had, I ended up at Baylor. It was between University of Texas and Baylor. And where I went for preview weekend was all the journalism classes. And I went and I talked and I went to um, one of the Baylor conversations with a journalist professor who was very renowned and taught all of the early classes. And I remember him saying in there, he was looking at sort of my transcript and background. And he was like, he said, uh, I see that you are also very interested in history. And this is something that you've done a lot with. And he said, it's always good to have something to write about. And I remember thinking, I was like, you know, that's actually a good thought. And so the, I enrolled early. I actually started early in summer classes and I enrolled in an early history class. And I had that professor, actually, he's, he turned 99 this week. He's no longer teaching at Baylor, but he's still here. But I remember um, at the end of that class, he asked me to come talk to him in his office. And he said, hey, Beth, I know that you are thinking of doing professional writing journalism, but he said, you would be a really good historian. And he said, historians are really good writers. And he said, think about it. And within just a few weeks, I decided to make my primary major history. And the reason was, is because I wanted to go into writing eventually, but I wanted to have something to write about. And I wanted to know something. And I just fell in love with the historical discipline. And I really never considered changing my major again. Um, but I'm delighted the course that my career has taken that has allowed me to go back into professional writing um, because that's really what started me into history. Yeah, so it kind of comes full circle in the end with your book, um, yes. being able to write that. I just like too from hearing a little bit about your testimony and how you got into history. It sounds like there was a lot of people that really modeled well for you and spoke into your life. So I, I like that structure that you had growing up. <clears throat> and it's probably yes. very good advice for anybody that's going to be a journalist to make sure you have something to write about. And going into history is probably pretty good job security as far as finding things to write about. Um, <laughs> it is. It is. So, so you've been at Baylor for a long time then. You were a student there. Yeah. Now you're a professor. How does, because, you know, for those that don't know, because some people only know Baylor from Sikkim and have no idea the fact that they actually are a religious institution. Um, how does history actually fit in? And this is where we're going to start talking a little bit longer here. How does history actually fit into a theological framework? Because, oh, um, you know, it. Yeah. this is something where, 
you and I both have been having conversations, you much bigger conversations than me, as far as the fact that if we don't know our history, we can't understand our theology. How does that actually fit together, though? Yes. So, and I will put that I was a Baylor undergrad, but I did my master's and PhD at Chapel Hill at the University ah. of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So I've had, you know, religious institution, but then also a very non-religious public um, R1 university. So that and you're, was... you're running all over the place, college football, because you're, you're, you know, the rest of your family is Auburn. Yes. You're full Baylor, and then you also were at UNC. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, okay, so, you got basketball season covered too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Here's the thing about me is that I just, I, you know, I'm very loyal to Baylor. I love Baylor. I don't really care that much about sports. <laughs> so I don't really care about Carolina sports. People always try to get me into the rivalry between Duke and Carolina, and I just don't really care. Um, so anyway, so it's kind of I'm I'm very bad at that. I don't really I, feel. I, I did oh notice, God. though, that you whispered in your office that you don't really care about the sports program there. That was probably a smart move also. But anyway, yeah, sorry, back to, yes, <laughs> back, back to the question at hand here. How, how does, you know, why does it, why does history actually matter for, yeah. for you know, a, a theology minded person? Yes, this is this is a conversation that historians and theologians have all the time. Um, sometimes uh, with sometimes with a lot of disagreement, uh, but as a historian, I will tell you that history, that who we are, the world in which we live, the culture around us, informs how we think about God, and so we cannot. Our theology is inseparable from history. Um, they completely, you know, theology is inseparable from culture. There is nothing, uh, there is no sort of pure um, understanding of God from a human perspective that is completely separate from the world in which we live. So I would argue that in order to understand theology, in order to understand, you know, theology historically, that's actually a discipline, historical theology, in order to understand theology historically, we have to understand the history that produced that theology. Um, and so, I, I mean, I would argue that it is absolutely impossible. And I would also argue that it is not really professionally ethical to try to argue for theology um, or theological perspective without rooting that understanding in history. Um, which is really what the making of biblical womanhood was doing, mm. that theology stems from history, and we can trace that. So, yeah. And as you've continued to learn and study more, how has your um, lens as you open up and read the Bible maybe changed as you look at Scripture and maybe help it come alive more? Tell us a little bit more how, how you read Scripture and, and Gosh. how it looks differently now. Yes, no, it has, because I have been. I've been reading scripture and memorizing scripture all of my life. And so I think now, you know, um, I always tell my students, and I even actually just told my daughter this the other day, I said, I have never run into anything that scared me about my faith. Um, mostly what it did is it made me think, oh, maybe 
maybe I need to have a bigger lens here in order to understand this. And I think that's because I was so well grounded as a child and I have my family modeled very strong, firm intellectual faith. Um, you know, they never kept me from reading things. Um, you know, my fourth grade book report was on the Odyssey. And so, I mean, I was reading stuff fourth, really, fourth really, grade. Yeah, I know it was really, it was, yeah, it, you, I, starting you were definitely destined for, uh, for <laughs> professordom if you were doing book reports on the Odyssey in fourth grade. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the Iliad is actually still today my favorite book. Um, you know, so hands down, it's still my favorite story. So, um, anyway, it's, I, I think with the Bible, what I have learned is that on the one hand, um, the Bible itself is situated in culture. And so reading it, and I think that's the way God, I mean, God knew that God gave it to us this way. He gave it to us through the personalities of the people who were involved in it. I mean, he let us see the the good and the bad. I mean, the Bible is certainly not a hero story. Um, it is a story of flawed people who still find God because of God's mercy and reaching down. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, you know, all of those, uh, we, we see that in the Bible. So the Bible is situated in culture um, because it spans really, you know, more than 2000 years of its telling. Um, it spans, we have to think about all of the different cultures that participated in it. Um, but at the same time, the Bible then is also translated in culture. And so what we, and then we read it in culture. So there's really three areas. Now, what is amazing about that to me is that we still walk away with what I call the big story of the Bible. We still walk away with pretty much the understanding of salvation and how and what Jesus did even though we have different understandings of atonement theory and all sorts of that, you know, this understanding that God provided a way for salvation um, despite what the brokenness of this world. And that story has remained, you know, is, is understood regardless of all of these different cultural um, lenses and that interrupt or maybe could keep us, um, uh, you know, that, that could potentially change the story. And for me, that is actually really, as a historian, I mean, uh, that's really miraculous that the plan mm -hmm. for salvation has remained pretty much unchanged. I mean, there's different understandings of it, um, but the basic, um, you know, what Paul preached is what we still preach today with pretty much the same understanding. And that, that's why, so, you know, when we, we started this series out, however many weeks ago that was, I don't know, math. Yeah. We, it, yeah. After Christmas? Our, yeah, it was after Christmas. Our, our listeners know very well that if it's involving math, then probably don't trust anything that I say. Oh, that, I'm with uh, that, too. I'm, yeah. I'm with you on that. Well, I'm sure your students now are going to be asking about their grades. Um, <laughs> but You know what? That's what computers are for. Exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, when you're I, good with computers. Like I've this. taught. You know, I've taught at multiple different levels, you know, elementary all the way through high school. Yeah. And like they always some of these small Christian schools are always like, oh, no, we still use the paper grade books. And it's like, no, I think I'm going to go find an online one to do it for me. <laughs> um, where were we going with? Oh, yeah, we're you know, we started this whole thing off talking essential doctrines. Yeah. And the reason why we did that is exactly what you were just talking about. There is that there is still very clearly laid out the plan that God that God has laid out from the beginning 
But part of what you were talking about there, or you know how you started, was you were saying how historians and theologians typically are always, you know, fighting back and forth and arguing about all well, this. Some of us, stuff. some of us, some. not all of us. Right, not all. Some. I mean, you marry you married a theologian and you're a historian, so you know. But typically, the fields, you know, go back and forth a lot. Why? Why is it? What? What do you think? Why is it that the at least right now the church is so resistant mm -hmm. to the field of history not even necessarily yeah. theological history just you know american history world history history as a whole why is it that we are so resistant to it yeah no i that's because of our culture that is why um, if we think about the history of the modern evangelical church, and what we also have to understand is that not all American Christianities um, are resistant to history. Right. It yeah. is a particular strain, a very loud, very large strain of conservative evangelicalism. But the uh, you know embedded within uh, conservative evangelicalism is really a strain of anti-intellectualism. And historians know this. There's, and part of this comes from, you know, Protestant ideology. And I always tell people, I'm, you know, I, where I fall theologically is Protestant. Where I fall ecclesiology is Baptist. Um, it does, you know, I, I know where I stand on these issues and that where I prefer. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't mean I can't recognize some uh, problems within my own theology. Mm -hmm. And one of them is within Protestantism, this idea of the priesthood of all believers and where does authority lie? And the argument is that all of us can equally understand that. Well, it's interesting. Really, it's all men, all white men. That's mm -hmm. really where it actually it comes. But this understanding that um, theoretically all of us can understand the Bible for ourselves and read it for ourselves, and we don't need an intermediary. We don't need a priest, um, although I will also tell you that that's a bit of a misunderstanding of medieval Catholicism and how it actually works, but nonetheless, this idea that we don't need an intermediary, we can go to God for ourselves, and somehow we've kind of taken that and meant that we can understand everything there is to know about the Bible all by ourselves, and that we can, you know, uh, and that our ideas are just as valid as somebody who is trained and has spent their lifetime doing research in those areas. And so, I mean, so Protestantism in some ways emboldens us mm -hmm. um, to believe that we can stand toe to toe, um, not not saying that somebody is more um, more theological, you know, more right in the eyes of God, but this idea of of discipline, of profession, of historical understanding that we can go eye to eye um, with somebody just because we are also a because we are a believer, and so it's this really fascinating, I think, a manifestation. Um, and we see it everywhere. We see it, you know, in the, it really picked up in the late 19th, early 20th century with a strong reaction. I mean, we know all of this with German um, readings of scripture where they went too far the other way and really just had a whole lot of fun with, you know, saying, well, if we deconstructing the Bible down to absolutely nothing. And, and so then there was this harsh reaction to that sort of the flip side, the pendulum swung completely the other way, that we've got to reject all of this intellectualism because it leads us away from our faith. 
And um, this is great oversimplification on my part, but this is pretty much what, you know, what has happened. And so what we end up with is this conservative evangelical world, which is highly suspicious of intellectuals. This is what we talked about a few weeks ago with Dr. Linville with the muscular Christianity movement. Mm -hmm. Same timeline. Yes. Same areas of study, same areas of the world, same cultures. And it's the exact same process of, well, look, there's some bad things happening, so let's just throw it all out. Right. Do you think that some of this also, some of the resurgence of this, because, you know, again, we talked about this with, with Dr. Linville from Muscular Christianity, but the resurgence of it kind of in the 1950s, 1960s, where it started really coming on. The term we use is Cold War theology. Um, that's what all the hashtags that suddenly showed up on your timeline were about was that's the term <laughs> I use for this. Um, you know, we use, but does some of the mistrust of history have to do with the rise of the anti evolution movement within oh. evangelicalism or are these two separate yeah. things? No, 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 they're completely, I have not entered into the evolution fray. <laughs> Yes. Um, you know, I've thought about it in the graduate school. One of my good friends, he just retired from being an associate dean with me, but he's a geologist and he sent me all sorts of really fun stuff. Uh, <laughs> and he has all we kept trying. I don't know if y'all know this, but Waco's not very far from Glenrose, mm -hmm. Texas, where the Creation Museum mm -hmm. is, mm -hmm. you know, one of the early ones, not Ken Ham's big productions. Right. Yeah. But we kept we kept trying to get him to go to the Creation Museum with us. And we never could get him to go inside it with us. <laughs> so that was <laughs> Anyway, I regret that one day I'd like to get them inside of it. But, but um, once you're done arguing inerrancy, you can you can start arguing ar arguing some other can stuff. You, can you imagine what's going to happen to me? <laughs> um, anyway, but um, so yes, I mean this is the same thread. This is the same thread. This sort of this idea that be that, and I mean creationism is tied in with this understanding of inerrancy. Um, and that is that the Bible is completely free from errors in science and history. And I'm going to say this very carefully uh, because I know what people do with my words. Um, and so <laughs> what, what that means is that we have a text that is written in a time period that the understanding of science was vastly different. And we know that much, you know, Old Testament is Hebrew poetry. And and so we take those texts, those particular literary genres, and we try to turn them into science textbooks. And it's it hasn't done, gone well. Um, you know, I remember I was applying for a job one time and there was some concern about this whole creation evolution debate. And they asked me this question, what do I think about creationism? And I remember that I didn't really know. I was like, oh my gosh, this is a trap. You know, I, I don't, I don't know what the it's right answer up. is. It's a trap. It's a trap. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. exactly right. You know, my star Wars background, like it's a trap. Um, <laughs> so I quoted Galileo and I said, the Bible tells us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. Mm. And everybody in the room was like, yes, yes. You know, and, and whatever side they sent that fit that worked for them. And so I've kind of, that's something that I try to help people you know, I've used that a lot since then. The Bible tells us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. Um, and that had found has kind of helped some people to rethink their really hard stance on issues like creationism. Um, and but it, you know, I mean, you know, they're they're building the Tower of Babel now. And yeah, you know, with the ark. I mean, my husband and I one day, I think I'm going to talk him into going there with me. 
Well, we're we're only about we're like what three and a half hours I think three and a half hours north of all of it. Yes. Yeah. But one of the things that I I can in the middle of a pandemic, why would your first thought be let's build the thing that insulted God enough that he shut everybody out? Yeah. Amazing. It is amazing. Anyway, so one day that's Everything. I try to talk my husband into all these field trips, and mostly he just looks at me. But um, but we're going. I'm going to get us there. So uh, where would you recommend that someone would start as far as a historical text? Um, because there, like you said, there's a lot to break down, but also this fear a little bit too. Where would you recommend somebody starting first off? Oh gosh, that's a huge question. Um, so I think, you know, um, one of the pro it kind of depends on how deep somebody is in mm -hmm. this stuff, how much their worldview has been completely framed. Because one of the things um, that I try really hard as a as a professor, as a somebody who's a steward of students, um, is to try not to ever do something that shatters their faith in a way that they can't pick up the pieces. And this is something that um, you know, I mean, there's a really interesting. I don't know if you know who Bruce Metzger is, but mm -hmm. he was a you know wonderful uh, biblical scholar, and he kind of tells a story about Bart Ehrman, who was his student, um, and that you know I mean essentially you can hear it's like he did not know what the study of the New Testament text was doing to his student um, without him being able to break it down and help him better understand what was going on. And so I always think about that. I was like, I never want to do that to any of my students. Um, so we often have to be very gentle with them. And one really easy place to start is with Genesis, is with the creation order when God creates the heavens and the earth and walk through that. And my husband has a really great sort of diagram that we use with youth where we show how it fits into the patterns of poetry, you know, that God, you know, that then there is light um, mirrors when the sun and the moon are created. I mean, it just clearly shows. And it's a very easy way to kind of be like, hey, the Bible is written in literary genres. Mm -hmm. And this is one of them. And this is, you know, it's it's not it's not saying that God didn't create the world because God, you know, did. We still believe that. But understanding what is going on with how it is being written by the people who are telling this narrative is they're writing it in the literary genre of their culture. And so I've, we found that that's actually a really easy sort of way to help people understand the literary genres of the Bible. And then that often leads to like, oh, maybe I can maybe I should learn more about this. Mm. Um, and so that, those, I think, um, you know, another passage too is Romans 16, which I find, I mean, that's what I use on women's issues. Um, anyone comes to me as questions, I say, let's just go to Romans 16. Um, Romans 16 provides the opportunity to teach about translation history. Mm -hmm. And so you can pull it in. And one of the things that you can, you can look at all these different translations and you can say, okay, so what do these different translations change about this text? On the one hand, they don't change what Paul is doing, that Paul is telling, you know, these are all of the people who have supported and helped me and I'm telling them thank you and all of that. It doesn't change sort of what's going on in that text. What it does change is our understanding of what those people are doing. Mm -hmm. And that's where, so that also helps people realize there's a difference between saying that Bible translations change the narrative um, and realizing what pieces of it that they change. And those pieces don't really have anything to do with the bigger story, mostly. And that, so, that's a, yeah. I, I'm going to jump in for a second and 
because we know already what the response to a lot of this stuff is. Th- this is where, because, you know, um, those of you that listen to this n- this podcast and have for a while know or have listened to me on anything else know, my, my college experience was not good. Oh. And a lot of it was because of stuff like you were talking about, yeah. but it was not laid out in the way that you're talking here. It was laid out in a, we're going to just completely tear out all these false, yep. you know, Cold War theology stuff, mm-hmm. and then we're going to replace it just with the academics. Yep. But what we're talking about here is something completely different. We're talking about we are going to take the blinders off and let you actually appreciate the full picture of what God has laid out in front of us. Yes. Because this isn't just a, this is, we're going to get you off of the, we're going to stand on young earth or old earth creationism as our line in the stand. Shout out to the big creation museum. And instead we're going to look at and it's like, you know, it doesn't matter if it's young or old. We see the fact that God had an order when he created things. Right. And that that gives us purpose and that gives us meaning. And now we understand why the Imago Dei is such a big yes. part of the Christian That's exactly faith. right. That's exactly right. It shows yeah. us, yeah. Yeah, and, and that that is what, we're, and, and this is also where, you know, we can start going into before we, before we take our break here. This is also where the big argument over inerrancy is coming out of, is this idea of inerrancy means no errors. And so if you deny it, then that means you have complete, completely taken all your faith out of scripture. This is why I've always preferred the term infallible over inerrant. What would, would that be moral on the lines of where you are at as far as you're, you, you're trying to get me into trouble, aren't you? You know, I've tried <laughs> you, so hard. On I figured you had, I figured you had looked into us enough to know that we get into enough <laughs> trouble yeah, on our own. Almost no questions that are off. And <laughs> and we get into the trouble ourselves. This is just now, unfortunately, you're just associated with us on IMBD. I mean, that's you okay. Know. It's like, I, I can handle it. So here's the thing. Both inerrancy and infallible are words that we used to try to describe a particular approach to the Bible. They are not, they are not, now infallible is a much older word than inerrancy. Um, Inerrancy today has gotten much narrower than Mm -hmm. it used to be. Um, So these are words that we cannot, so when you ask me the question, where do you fall on infallible versus inerrancy? What I think in my back of my head is, well, you're asking me, where do I fall on the historical construction of these terms. You know, I'm, what I'm actually asking you is, would you say much more that it is, you can argue that the infallibility of scripture is a, a thing, as far as the, the context of infallibility, I mean that you, the Bible is not going to contradict itself. And it's faithful for salvation. And, it, and it's faithful for salvation, for faithful salvation. for training. And, you know, the sec, Right. Second Timothy three, Second Timothy yes. four, which is yeah, a lot exactly. of what we built ministry misfits around are those two chapters specifically. Yeah. Um, you know, so that that context of infallible versus the there's no grammar problems, there's no uh, you know, your the whole idea of water coming out of the earth instead of on top of it, all of that kind of stuff that we see, where you know, would infallibility in a historical because that's what we're talking about a historical context and an academic context of you are not going to be able to contradict scripture within itself much more of what you and even Kristen uh dumez which i can never say her name right so, so Dume. it's Dume. Yeah, i know i always correct. mess it up 
I always right. accept what you guys are actually arguing is that the beauty of scripture is that God has laid this out in front of us for our faith and for our fulfillment and to understand him in today's world. And that that is what we, in that it is faithful for the pre preserving of our faith and for the building up of our faith and for understanding who God is. So, yeah, I mean, uh, let me couch it. Um, so what I think has happened with inerrancy and infallible is that both of those terms have become much more narrow than what they were originally intended to convey. And they, in fact, inerrancy has become so narrow that it now says, you know, that the Bible has to not only be completely without error in matters of faith, history, science, um, but it also is has to be understood within a particular understanding mm -hmm. of those passages. Um, and if you don't do that, then you are not inerrant, which means you don't trust the Bible. Mm -hmm. And that's where it has kind of gotten. So that's the argument that I'm pushing against. Kristen, too, I mean, you know, Kristen really didn't get into a biblical argument with Jesus and John Wayne at all. I mean, no, it was all history. It's all <laughs> straight history. And so yeah. it's so funny because I'm like, you cannot tell where she is on these issues from reading Jesus on John Wayne. And that's what I'm also arguing about the making of biblical womanhood um, too, is that, you know, people have put words and the reason that they have said that I do not, you know, the reason that they have gone after me on inerrancy is because my understanding of scripture does not fit. My understanding of women's roles does not fit in the way that they now argue inerrancy has to interpret it. Right. And so that, you know, that's what I'm really pushing back against. And I'm trying to get people to step back and be like, well, where did we get even these words? Right. Um, it's not that I don't think creeds are important, um, although I am Baptist, which means we don't go around reciting creeds. You know, <laughs> even we though just, we hold to them harder than even a lot of others do. We, yes, we don't go around reciting creeds. So that's, we just that don't was, admit it. Yeah, that was it's really funny. Um, but at the same time, we have to understand, and I, I think the the understanding of where infallible and even inerrancy was coming from was this idea that we can trust scripture, that we trust, that we can believe that even with, you know, that it's telling history from the standpoint um, of the people who lived it, which means, and we know from history that um, eyewitness accounts are are always seen through the perspective of the person, which means that it's, you know, you can't ever get a straight, completely facts about what happened because everything is interpreted through mm -hmm. us. So we can get close. Um, and so it gives us this, when we think about, you know, is the Bible still trustworthy on these issues? And I would say, yes, absolutely. Um, and me, like, you know, this is what's funny too, is some not, actually some relatively kind if you think about it in the context of everything that's happened to me um some <laughs> re some religious studies scholars uh one in particular who went after my book very early on and their problem with it was that i didn't deconstruct my faith within the they saw how strong my faith was in the in the bible and they were like no you know this is actually academically we need to push this further and I totally understand where they're coming from, but I'm also very, as a scholar of faith, um, I, you know, I understand their perspective, but I'm also like, no, um, I actually really do believe. And so it's so ironic to me 
that here we have these academics who are very far on the other side who see how strong my faith is. And yet we have people because my faith does not fit into their definitions of what it should be are trying to argue that I'm on the slippery slope that leads away. So, so you're a misfit. Yeah. yeah, that's right. She's a misfit. I am. I'm a misfit. According see, you, yeah. see, you, the, the t-shirt would fit. See? <laughs> yeah, it and would. I, and I think that's what we always talk about too, being that salt and light, which it sounds like mm -hmm. you very much are, especially for the community that you're in. Uh, but we're going to take a quick break. And then we get back, when we get back, we're going to talk about Dr. Barr's book, which you already hinted at a little bit, the making of a biblical, well, excuse me, the making of biblical womanhood. This episode of the Ministry Misfits podcast and this awesome shirt are brought to you by a Courageous Clothing Company. Courageous Clothing Company is a Christian family-owned business that specializes in custom designs that they create as well as bulk screen printing of your custom designs as well. When you buy from Courageous Clothing Company, you're not just buying an awesome shirt, you also are helping spread the gospel across the world through the missions that they support, such as this here with Ministry Misfits, as well as with their own designs that have Christian-themed messages sharing the gospel in an awesome and relevant way, or as we say within CSRM and Ministry Misfits, strategically relevant evangelism. Check out their entire line at CourageousClothingCompany.com. Hi, this is the Ministry Misfit, Andrew Fouts. I'm also the Director of Digital Resources for CSRM and the producer of Overwhelming Victory Productions. And today we want to talk a little bit about Anchor FM. Part of our job here at Overwhelming Victory Radio is to provide ministries with easy and affordable ways to create their own media content. And one of these ways is Anchor FM. Anchor is a free one-stop studio with tools to allow you to create a custom podcast experience. They do everything from creation tools, distribution tools, and even marketing tools with ads such as this. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Alright, welcome back. We are still here with Dr. Beth Allison Barr, and we are still talking the the context of history and theology mm -hmm. together and why they're important. And you know, before we broke, we really got into why they're important and the idea of even just understanding the wording that we're using within our theology, the culture, the historical value, things like that. We've already kind of addressed world history, medieval history, which medieval history is actually your specialty, correct? It is, yeah. Yeah. So we, we've we've which all the more reason why it's shocking that people think you don't understand the Reformation and everything when you're coming <laughs> when you're teaching medieval history. Um, yeah. You yeah. know. Side note again, and you know, well, this is a just a free PSA, and I said this earlier on Twitter. Before you try to discredit somebody's credibility, make sure you actually look to see who you're talking to. And before you try to claim something is anti-biblical and to read the Bible, make sure they did not literally copy and paste Matthew chapter 5. <laughs> There's a free, so, one, free one for you. Yeah, that's a free one there. Um, 
But anyway, we, we've gone through kind of a world history perspective. We've looked at, you know, even the, the more modern constructs of how we understand Scripture. But let's move into more of where we're getting into even within your book. And we're going to actually look at world history theology in terms of the past 60, 70 years. Because it seems like, at least relatively speaking, that a lot has happened very quickly and not in a good way, and specifically within the UK, the United States, Canada, Australia. So, you know, the, the Western democracy powers. Mm-hmm. There have been some major cultural shifts that have mainly been led by the church and not in a necessarily good way. So, Dr. Barr, let's just start. What would you agree, first of all, that this, this has happened much quicker than we see in other areas of history? And do you have any insight as to why that actually is? Um, so I am a social historian by training. That's my profession as a social historian. So, you know, all of the people who try to, anyway, I don't, nobody's really picked up on that yet. I'm really surprised I haven't been thrown more Marxist sort of thinking because that's what people. <laughs> they they save it. that, they save that for podcasters like me. I guess, I don't know. It's kind of interesting, but I am a social historian. Um, part of that's because I care about ordinary people more than anything else in history. And so how you get at the history of ordinary people. Um, and so when one of the, major training schools of social history is a French school called the Annals School. And the Annals made this lovely argument about sort of how history works. And they argued that, you know, history is like the ocean and you have all of this depth and all of this stuff that that's going on underneath the way underneath the surface of it. Um, and lots of, you know, whether it be underground movement or plate tectonics or the fish or whatever is going on in the ocean, we have all this stuff going on, but it's only when it hits the surface that we can see the waves, that we can see the impact of it. And so like what I think is going on now in, um, in modern, in the, in modern U.S. Christianity, especially in as it relates to conservative evangelicalism, um, is something that has been building in the ocean for a long time. And it's only now recently that we can see the waves. Hmm. And I think that's why, you know, Jesus and John Wayne, one of the, the brilliant things that it did is that it helped to show us what was going on underneath the surface. Um, that, you know, why did we get these waves? Why, why did we get the January 6th riot? Why did we get, why did Trump even get able to be labeled as a Christian? Um, who represented Christian values, um, that didn't come out of nowhere. It came from what has been going on underneath the surface for a long time. Um, so when we think about the Reformation or really Reformations, which is a better way to talk about it, mm-hmm. that's also what we think about. You know, There have been currents, things that have been going on underneath that then allowed us to come to the 16th century. So I think that's what's been going on. In the, I think what we are seeing are the waves, mm-hmm. those yeah, the- um, in some places, the tsunamis. <laughs> yeah, the the picture you just gave the uh, first image that popped in my mind is that scene from Finding Nemo, 
Yeah. Uh, the minefields are going off all over the place, and all you <laughs> see on the top, it looks like it's just a little fart bubble from from the you know the pelican or whatever it is. But you know yep. that that right there is part of what you know. We we talked a little bit about that with Dr. Linville, but we've really been talking about that all the way through mm-hmm. since mm-hmm. since the beginning of episode one with Bradley Barnes when we looked at um, the apartheid movement in South Africa with him as a child. Yeah, is that a lot of these things going on have we can trace back much further. Right. But for some reason, we don't like to do that. Why? Why do we not? Why are we not willing to go back and look? You know, this is the big argument against CRT is the whole thing of, well, we can't teach that side of history. Well, why? Why are we so afraid of our past? Especially as believers, where our whole our whole concept is that we're free from our past because of, of what Christ has done. Why are we so afraid of looking at our past? Well, because it makes us look bad. I mean, seriously. I mean, that's one of the things I said. And I actually remember when I wrote the line, and I was actually a little upset about something. Um, and it was when I said, you know, history, um, you know, I, what did I say? I said something about that. That's not history. That's propaganda. That mm-hmm. when we try to tell, um, you know, we can't tell just because we don't like the story doesn't mean we can change it. That's not history. It's propaganda. Um, and so I think that's part of it is our identity and our evangelical identity has almost been built in sort of this idea that we are the we are the promised nation. I mean, there's been this conflation of the U.S. with Israel. Mm-hmm. We can also see this. Um, you know, there's another whole theological argument going on. I remember when my mom, when I was in junior high, and my mom was teaching us, um, uh, teaching my junior high class, which is interesting. And I remember that there was that somehow there was a question or something that came up about you know if the if covenant if the Abrahamic covenant applies. And I remember my mom being like. No, <laughs> we are not the promised nation. Um, and so it's this, uh, but somehow we have conflated that where we have become that. And so if we realize that we aren't, that means we're not special. We aren't any better than, I mean, I, I think part of it is this, this myth of the U.S. nation. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I we don't want to get rid of that. We don't want to admit and that we are wrong, that we've been wrong. I mean, that's part, that's why we don't like to look at our past is because we don't like to admit that we are wrong. Um, we don't like to realize that our grandfather who we loved was actually really racist and really didn't treat or talk about, um, a, you know, black people very well at all. And that tarnishes that some way makes us seem, you know, tarnishes our understanding of who the people in our life are that we love. And and that can be hard. But at the same time, you know, as a historian, it's like we're all human Mm -hmm. and um, that's not an excuse, but that is like we have to accept ourselves as human. That's part of our problem is we're flawed. And if we refuse to recognize those flaws, then it gets us uh, it gets us into a lot of trouble. And so I think. I don't know. That's yeah. Yeah, and for a lot of people not wanting to take responsibility for things too, saying, "Oh, I, that wasn't yes. me. That was years in the past. I just want to look at my lifespan, and that's about it." It's the yes. it's the it's Hezekiah's folly. You know yeah. what, what we see with within you know for those that don't know this, Hezekiah is a king of Israel or king of Judah. Sorry, king of Judah. 
he's he's the only one of the good kings before Josiah that passes God's test because all all of the the kings of Judah that are good get struck with some kind of illness, and all but Hezekiah and Josiah immediately just run to the doctor. Hezekiah calls for the prophet Isaiah to come to him and pray over him, and because of that, he's he's healed. He's given a long reign and a prosperous reign. But then when these people from Babylon come in, Hezekiah shows them the temple and shows them the forbidden places for Gentiles. And because of that, Isaiah prophesies Babylon. Mm -hmm. And Hezekiah's response is, well, at least there will be peace in my time. And because of that, we see his son Manasseh, the most evil, you know, he makes Ahab look look friendly. We we see, you know, later down the line with his great 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 grandkids with Babylon literally carting them off right. blind and dumb to to off into exile, all because of one mistake where not only did he make the mistake, but he was unwilling to see how big of a mistake it actually was. Right. And and it's in part I mean in human nature, I mean, I think is this emphasis on the individual and that we don't carry corporate responsibility. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I think really God calls us to be stewards. I, that's what we see in Genesis. God calls us to be stewards and being a steward means not just thinking about ourselves, thinking about the, how, what we are doing is creating a legacy for the people who come after us, as well as having an understanding of what came before us and what but today, what we really only want to do is focus on who we are right now. I mean, this is actually across the board in history. Um, there, uh, I can't remember when it was like one of the last times I was in England before COVID hit. So um, maybe 2019. Um, and I that was around the time that they made the announcement that with the SAT, that the history wasn't going to go back further than the Reformation. And I mean, that just totally freaked me out because I was like, how can we... I mean, that is keeping us from understanding how we got to the Reformation. Right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's it's simply dangerous not understanding who we are and what has come before us and understanding our position in the bigger framework. I mean, that 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 alone, and this is something where, you know, just from a history perspective, not even a theology perspective that we we need to be aware because world war one really started all the alliances and everything for world war one started before there were any of those nations around mm-hmm. you know it you can trace world war one back into you i mean i'm sure you have a better number than i do i'm trying to remember back it's like almost like 1300 something like that when these kingdoms started forming and marrying well, people off we, yeah, we do see, yeah, and then it's really early modern where we see the rise of the nation state. Right. Um, you know, all, all then, of these things, are they play a role in the play important. And even from those that want to hold a more, you know, conservative, traditional mindset of Scripture, if we don't have these things, we cannot understand what is going on within our Scriptures. Right. You know, the, this yeah. is the, the argument that has been going a lot, you know, the word we haven't said, even though we've been talking about, it, is the Christian nationalist movement, you know, coming on with the replacing Israel in, in America and everything like yes. that. Yep. But, you know, one, one of the things that's been going on on Facebook, not on Twitter, is these people that are conflating the Jewish government system that was set up when Israel demanded a king. 
mm-hmm. and they are claiming that economically they were a capitalist society. And when you ask them to go through, and um, you know, I, I don't know, this was on Facebook also that I had mentioned this as well. Somebody asked me to define capitalism. When I told him you won't find it in the Bible, and so I literally copied a section out of Wealth of Nations from Adam Smith and posted it as my response. And they're like, that is a weird definition. Where'd you get that? I was like, Adam Smith. I said, who's that? Some CRT scholar? I was like, uh, no, that'd be the founder of ca- the father of capitalism. You may want to go back and read the book. But when we don't give any credence to what led up to what we have now, right? this is what we see. Yep. And really, that's where we, you know, jumping into your book, this is where we get a lot of the things as far as the egalitarian, egalitarian, you know what I'm saying, egalitarian, <laughs> there we go, egalitarianism and the complementarianism debate is that you have two completely separate parties that are going at each other when, you know, you're arguing that really there is a middle ground here biblically and historically if we actually read it in context. So give us a little bit of insight. What actually led you to writing the book itself? (laughs) Yeah, the book was an act of desperation. That's just really it. Um, You know, I had gotten to the point where I realized and you know, as I said, I've been in the church all of my life and I've been a pastor's wife since 1997. Um, and so I've seen a lot and <laughs> I've listened to a lot of sermons all the way through. I've listened to sermons um, for all sorts of people, um, some sermons that, you know, probably people hope I don't write about one day. Now, uh, now we're really going to get you into trouble. <laughs> we're really going to get you in trouble here. Where does your husband rank as far as your favorite pastor to listen to? Oh, you, you know make what? a rank? Don't, no, you're not, you know what's really funny is um, we're we're totally honest about this. My husband's intent was to stay in youth ministry, all mm. of his. He really feels much more comfortable teaching and working with students. I mean, we kind of got pushed out and at his age, you know, we were in our mm-hmm. 40s. It's really hard to get a full-time youth ministry job when you're in your 40s. They're pushing and, us out at age 30 now, saying we're too yeah, old well, for youth ministry. Which is crazy because yeah. you really need seasoned people who, uh, I mean, you just really do. I mean, my husband was a brilliant youth pastor, a brilliant youth pastor. Um, when we decided to take the church that we are at now, um, that was a hard hard decision. It's a church that has, I mean, it's a historically church um, in important church in that it's a neighborhood church and it that area really needs a strong church and there's some wonderful people there who have been working hard for a long time and so we moved into it knowing that there was going to be a lot of hard work to do and also knowing that preaching wasn't my husband's favorite thing um and so he kind of uh, actually he's he mostly adapted a lot of his youth ministry sort of teaching lessons and tried to pull those in but you know i mean he's totally this is not his favorite thing to do uh, is, your husband and i would get along pretty well yeah <laughs> i mean he he's, he loves all the other pastoral aspects of it and so forth but pro- i mean he's gotten much more comfortable with it now but it's still not his favorite thing um and of course you know i i actually teach my area of specialty of study is sermons 
I read medieval sermons. That's where I, I teach a whole class on the art of sermon construction and understanding sermons as a historical source. And so you better believe that every sermon I listen to is so, I mean, my husband's just used to me. Um, he just, you know, he doesn't take. And so, and, but he also knows when I say that was a good sermon, he totally He's like, oh, yay, you know, because check that I mean, off. You're the not, list. Yeah, you're not just yep. say, you're not just saying it for no reason. Yeah, I'm just exactly, exactly, and so, so yeah. Sorry uh, to take you off on that tangent there, but no, yeah, going okay. going back into it, you've listened to a lot of sermons, and all uh, mo the majority of them. Um, you know, in my evangelical experience, um, you know, preaching is an art, and it is um. It is an art that is combined with skill, with knowledge, and with delivery. Mm -hmm. And what I have found is that the people who have skill, who have knowledge, often don't have the delivery piece. And the people who have the delivery piece often don't have the knowledge piece. And then the people who are really skilled are more likely to both have the knowledge and the delivery, but they're really far and few between. You know, there's there's very few. So it's, you know, it's um, preaching is an art and it has a whole, his, you know, where did it even come from? That's a whole mm -hmm. history, too. But we may have you back to yeah. talk that eventually. Oh, I love talking sermons. You know, I don't get to talk sermons very much in this public space, but that's that's my that's my area of expertise. Awesome. But yeah, so going through, you you've yeah. heard heard these different sermons within evangelicalism and you described it as a moment of desperation coming out yes. of those different sermons. Yeah. Yeah. Was this just say I'm going to cuz you know, we've had um David Waddell who is a, a CSRM compatriot with us. Um, you know, he's written three or three books. He's writing his fourth one on the epistles of Paul here right now. But part of what he talked about is he accidentally stumbled into writing. He was writing these little blurbs on Facebook and somebody said you should put them into a book. And so he did. You, you though, come from a journalism background and you are a, a distinguished professor at a distinguished university. It should be a little bit more of an easy aspect to see you writing a book, but you know, a moment of desperation does not sound like this just naturally fell into place. <laughs> no, I mean, I write academic stuff. Um, I write, you know, uh, my first book was called The Pastoral Care of Women in Late Medieval England. It's not a really sexy title. Um, it, you know, it, it maps out gender inclusive language in a 15th century sermon collection. That's pretty much what it does. It, and, you know, it walks there. I mean, there's a lot of fun things in it. It does um, sound interesting to me, but probably not to a lot of other people, yeah. you know? Yeah. You know, and, yeah. My husband always says, he's like, when people say, Oh, you know, I got your first book. And my husband's like, do they know that that's not the <laughs> making a biblical woman? Yes. <laughs> so, you know, but the problem though with academics is that we do learn to write very stylistically in an academic way. In fact, academic, Academia can kill good writing. And it killed my good writing for a while. I have this really horrible phase. I tell my students it's my bad title phase. I have these horrific titles like of articles and stuff um, during the time where I was trying to get tenure and it was more about publishing more. Mm -hmm. um, Fulfilling so, the contract. Yeah. Yeah. What, so what's I, Alan Iverson's or uh, Richard Lynch's line? I'm just here. I'm just here so I don't get fined. 
mm-hmm. for yeah. the press conference. <laughs> That's it. And so, you know, so the making of biblical womanhood was a different book from the beginning. It's not, it is based on academic research, but it is written towards a popular audience. And the reason I call it an act of desperation is because I really realized what we call the Christian distribution problem, the Christian academic distribution problem. And that is that the ordinary church, most people in the ordinary church have no idea what academics know mm-hmm. about about history and about the Bible, that there is a there that that information is not getting to them. So the question is why? And one of the reasons is because most seminaries actually don't have trained scholars. They don't have trained historians. They have people trained in seminaries, which doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad. I mean, you know, like Scott McKnight is a wonderful biblical scholar and he is at Northern Seminary and they have a wonderful, you know, and Lynn Coick is there and so, et cetera. So I'm kind of doing broad brush in some ways, but um, as far as historians at conservative Baptist seminaries, we are few and far between. Um, especially sermon, especially historians that are like myself, a medieval scholar. Medievalists are very hard to find um, at, at seminaries across the board. Um, and so that's part of the distribution problem is pastors are being trained in spaces that they are being trained by other pastors. And, and that means that there's this knowledge is not getting through to them. Um, the other problem is that most academics don't write well. We don't write to popular audiences. Most people get you know, pick up an academic book and they're like, oh my gosh, you know, how am I ever going to get through this? We don't, we write to the guild. We don't write to ordinary people. And, and this is a thing, you know, Kristen, what was so brilliant. I mean, her book is very accessible to ordinary people. And so when I decided to write the making of biblical womanhood, that was what I, that was my audience. My target audience is I've got to take all of this stuff I know and make it accessible to ordinary people to help close that distribution gap between what is sound scholarship and what church people are learning. And so that was kind of, so that was an act of desperation in that sense where I was like, people gotta know what I know and I've gotta get it to them. And that really we've come full circle from the beginning now, Mm -hmm. Because th- this is the whole thing as to why we have such a problem with this in the church. Yeah. And, and it even goes back to what you were talking about. Even ironically, it's almost the opposite of what the evangelical church preaches as far as the, you know, individual priesthood of believers of only people that fall into this category can teach can teach our leaders. And if they yes. aren't teaching them, then we have to we we can't even hire them based off the the seminary they come out of. That's exactly right. It's a very um you know, there's a lot of nepotism hmm. in these seminaries. We only hire ourselves back. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, you train somebody like, look at John MacArthur, look at masters, um, you, whatever they call it. I don't remember. Yeah. Master seminary. Master seminary. Yeah. Anyway, it's, you really have to go through master seminary to be hired at master seminary. And so, um, you know, peer review of their stuff, um, you know, and, and there's this whole, there's this whole sort of like, oh, well, I'm a Christian. And because I'm a Christian, academia is not going to look at my stuff. And I'm like, hello academia has been much kinder to my scholarship than Christians have, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I get published. Nobody seems to blink. I mean, a lot of my friends are feminist scholars who aren't of faith and they read all of my scholarship seriously and they tell me what they think is wrong with it and they make me better. 
And, um, but it's not a, you know, it has nothing to do with my faith. They don't tell me my argument is poor here because I'm a Christian. They tell me my argument is poor because my argument is poor. Um, so, you know, I think Christian scholars kind of have to get this chip off our shoulder and be good scholars. Well, and even, and, you know, I'll, I'll take you a step further into my field as well and talk, you know, Christian pastors need to get the chip off their shoulder and start talking to people outside of being Christian pastor. I mean, this is the, the one of the things that I, I hate, one, one thing that I hated with interview processes, which I, I don't know how many interviews you got dragged into as the pastor's wife. My wife, unfortunately, got dragged into a few of them also. Um, you know, yeah, well, this I is another one for free, and I'm sure you would agree with this. When you're hiring the pastor, you are hiring the pastor. You are not hiring their families. Unless you're going to pay the families a salary as well, you are not hiring their families. Um, that that's a whole another soapbox we can get on another time. Another story. But you know the 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 question of you know where you know not necessarily where you were trained, but this idea of well, who are you listening to? Who are you reading? Which is a good interview question. But then when you tell them, then they immediately roll their eyes and shut the book. Right. Or if they ask, right. why haven't, you know, why, you know, why did you go to this school? And I tell them, well, they're the ones that paid for me to come. You know, I had to go, I had to go play baseball in order for me to go to school. Well, yep. okay. You're at that sim. you know, you're at that school. We closed the book. Yep. You know, we want we want people that are trained in this line, not this line. That is not how it's done. And even if they ask what kind of music you listen to and you tell them you like secular, you know, you listen to secular hip hop, they'll close the book. Even though what we see in and, you know, the qualifications for leadership in Timothy, we don't really see anything about how the church feels about the leader. We see how are they it talks about them being well respected within the outside community, mm-hmm. not the inside. We've yeah. got to get rid of this isolationism within there and actually expand out. And you know, this is how this podcast came about is we want to take theology theological academic constructs and make it so that people can actually understand it again. Yes. Yeah. Because when we understand it, we can actually do something about it and discuss, and we can get rid of some of these false ideologies, like, you know, using inerrancy as a weapon, you know, Cold War theology, replacement theology, Christian nationalism, which all of those things are really wrapped up into one one big ball of, you know, well, I mean, heresy, really. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, all of that kind of stuff. We, we've got to get rid of that kind of stuff. And a lot of it should be coming out of our people, people like you that are studying how we got here in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's exactly right. And, you know, and I, I think that ordinary people um, have the capacity to understand. I mean, I, I really value, I think people are smart. Um, mostly the problem is they haven't been exposed to things. It's not that they don't lack the ability. It's that they have lacked the access. Mm-hmm. And so it seems to me that, um, and that ordinary, I mean, they can deal with this stuff. I mean, some people might be like, oh my gosh, I never knew any of this stuff before. Um, so they might have a moment, but most people can, can deal with stuff. And so I think it, this idea that we need to hide ideas 
and that we need to protect people. In fact, you know, somebody wrote me the other day that they went to seminary at a at a conservative seminary. Um, they were a woman at a conservative seminary, and um, they were told by the professor uh, that there is that there are all these scholars who believe that women can be in ministry. But the professor had read all of that stuff and knew that it was invalid. And so the classroom did not need to read any of that stuff. They just needed to accept his word for it. And I was like, really? You know, I mean, that's like the opposite of what I tell my students. Um, I tell my students to go read it for themselves. Go read it for themselves. And so, I mean, this idea of, um, of being a buffer, of taking the ideas and only letting some of it get to the people in the church um, is it's a power play and i would argue it's unethical so well and, and you know take it a step further it's idolatry yes well you know, it's that, saying I, yeah. yeah yeah you know that that's what it is 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 it's a power play. and that that has been you know realistically um you know i i was i am not a big reader i i just i i, I yeah Say that what? I feel like that's hard to believe. I know, right? Uh, you know, I do more books on tape and podcasts. That's um, reading. Well, audio books. Right. You know, th those sort of things. And, you know, I wasn't able to get all the way through, you know, Jesus and John Wayne. But part of, you know, the, the what we see as far as what led to Donald Trump is the fact that we have, there is a sense of pride and idolatry within the pulpit structure now not necessarily yeah. every pastor but the idea of if you are in that pulpit then you hold power rather than if you are in that pulpit you are wielding the power of god through the scripture and so we got to make sure we're actually talking about it correctly it's now as you know we are we are going to make sure our congregation does what's right yeah rather than giving them the information to you to do it the the shift in the attitude towards the pastor and the sermon and even the pulpit it's actually really interesting the shift of how the pulpit mm -hmm. became the symbol um and i still remember owen i can't ever say his last name owen strain owen strock oh yeah he he does not like me he's one of the his followers the one that was demanding i pay him like three thousand dollars to prove i'm a christian <laughs> what yeah i'll, I'll wow. share that with you off air yeah <laughs> Wow, that's crazy. But um, anyway, he had this really funny piece he posted. Well, it wasn't funny to him, I suppose, but on um, on the pulpit as like the symbol of, I mean, it was just so hysterical to me because there were so many things you could read into it, as well as the fact that the pulpit is a very modern, mm -hmm. you know, this emphasis on a person as being the, the high point of the service is really interesting um and when you think about it from like a medieval perspective where everything in the medieval service was actually trying to de-emphasize mm -hmm. the person in the center and emphasize the body of christ and then we move it to what we have now i mean even that's why the priests stood with their back to the people right. when they elevated the host was part of that was de you know it's not about the person it's about the host now the now you the get medieval, yelled at if you turn your back on the congregation <laughs> medieval catholicism was had a lot of problems itself so um but nonetheless it, anyway it's interesting how this has developed but people we they do not know the history of how we got right. to where we are and it just and it totally misinforms our um theology and it misinforms, and it I I would argue that it hurts the gospel. 
Yeah. yeah, we'll definitely have to have you back on sometime to talk about sermons and the history of that because I feel like that'll be very yeah. interesting. You know, one one last story here. You know, bef- before we close out with what you were just talking about. You know, the um, the church, one of the churches we were at in Cleveland. You know, when I took on the the revitalization role there. Mm-hmm. One of the first things I did actually was put the pulpit back up and everybody started freaking out. It's like, oh, this guy's going to. I was like, no, this has nothing to do with the power move. I, and I even told it's like, if you don't like it, go build another one. It's like, but those little music stands cannot hold my notes. No, I need something to lay this out on. I was like, I will be the first to tell you, I think this pulpit looks like it's from 1950 and probably should have been condemned back then. You can get me get me a table if you want, but we're not going <laughs> <laughs> I need something to lay my notes out on. Yeah. It, but yeah, even no, with that. practical. Right. Very but practical. even with that, you know, knowing the historical, the historicity behind it could have prevented a bunch of people freaking out as well. Because everybody's yes. freaking out like, oh, well, the only people that use these are the fundamentalists and we don't want that in our church. Rather than the idea of. Oh wait, this guy is up there, and he actually has prepared all this stuff out, and needs to lay it out so that he can actually present it well. Yeah, and you know, is- or you know, the fact that I actually wanted my physical Bible up there instead of just using like the that. screen. Yeah. You know, all of those sort of things played much more into the decision to put the pulpit back. But because we are not actually willing to look at the reasoning behind things everybody gets all up in a tizzy which explains the past seven to ten years or even the past two weeks for us on twitter (laughs) so dr Barr, one last thing from you where can people actually go find your books your writings everything like that yeah well i think the making of biblical womanhood is pretty much everywhere um you can find it usually the best price is on baker bookhouse um they usually have a pretty good you know always slightly less um amazon of course you can get it um, but, and then you can find me on social media, on Twitter, Beth Allison Barr, Instagram, Beth Allison Barr. Um, and then I write regularly on the anxious bench, um, which is a religious history blog of scholars. Um, and we, it's a group history blog and it's on Patheos. And so I write at least once a month, often more, um, but that's where the making of biblical womanhood started was on the anxious bench. Um, so you can go and look me up there. Um, I am on Facebook, but Facebook is my least favorite social media. (laughs) (laughs) Even with everything going on in Twitter, Facebook still beats it out. Imagine that my least favorite. social media. I mean, it was, yeah. So I'm, I'm just not very I'm kind of present on Facebook, but not not super. So we'll we'll try and link all that. It should all the links will be in the show notes. Yeah. Once I actually remember to update the website, it'll all be there too. But we all know how well that goes. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, you can also again follow her on all the different social media channels. Will those will be linked in her guest portal on the website because those I do actually get updated. It's the resource section that I don't. I don't think I've updated it since Chalmer, which was yeah, way before little, you even got been here. A while. That was Father's Day, so it's been a while. <laughs> well, you, you, you might as well just wait till the next Father's Day, and it can be an annual update. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. See, you know. Um, but yeah, uh, and also um, go ahead share the share your husband's church information if people want to look up. You know, some of the stuff you guys are doing there. Oh gosh. I actually have been trying to not send, I mean, we have a tiny little church that mostly is completely ignorant of all this stuff that's going on. So anyway, but we're at First Baptist Elmont, 
which is a tiny church outside of Waco. Um, but, um, you know, it's not anyway. It, it we shows, like small churches, though. Yeah, that's where we kind of we like small churches. Very small church. It's yes. a very small, very economically poor church. Um, we're still not sure if we're going if it will survive COVID. We're hoping it does, but we'll see. This is, you know. Yeah, anyway. and, so and it, it's very part of why. Part of why we want to to highlight that though is because of the fact that you know we talked about this when we did um, it was on Giving Tuesday we talked mm-hmm. nonprofits and nonprofits and you know one was with an F and one was with a PH and you know the the thing that we we have found is that the majority of churches that are actually doing this stuff that we've been talking about are the ones that nobody's ever heard of. The leaders of those sure. church are the ones that should have the platform and do not. Yeah. So giving them well, a voice and a name. And so we want we want to highlight the the churches, you know, churches that are are tr- at least trying to do do the right thing here. So um, Yeah. Yeah, and I will tell you all that money that the everybody sent us when the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood tried to raise money from us, um, that's u- being used to fix the foundation of our activity center. So that that, it doesn't- that still that whole whole ordeal, I was dying when I kept seeing the numbers go up. It was like this is how you respond as a church to criticism. It was right amazing. Here. It was um, it, we it got up to almost forty thousand dollars. So yeah. it's like thirty nine nine hundred something. So speaking of raising money, <laughs> if you'd like to support support Ministry Misfits, there's a couple ways you can do that. One is through our Buy Me a Coffee, although we may be switching Buy Me a Coffee out here when we go into Season 2. We'll keep you updated on that. Yeah, probably a lot more changes for next yes, season. Yes, there's a lot of changes coming, so be, be on the lookout for all those. And hopefully we'll actually be able to update the website, website more once we make these changes. Um, you can do that through our Buy Me a Coffee still. We're still on there. Um, the Cash App is still there as well. You can also, if you want to do it for a tax tax credit, you can go to csrm.org backslash donate, click on domestic staff, then find my name in the drop-down box. That money not only goes to support the misfits, but it also supports the CSRM mission and vision as a whole, including Dr. Linville, who was on here the past couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, the store. Yeah, the store is still store up. to get our Ministry Misfits shirts. Also, the Tikva tees. That's right. The Tikva tees. Te- and again, 70% of profits from the Tikva tees goes back to Tikva to help the work that they are doing here with our kids here in inner city Canton. So, Dr. Barr, we are very glad that you agreed to come on yes, after I sarcastically asked if you were still taking open <laughs> invitations. Uh, we are, we're glad that you, you didn't read it as sarcasm and you agreed to come on anyway. So we, uh, again, go, go look in the show notes because there I do link the stuff when I don't remember to do it on the website. You can find her, the information for her books there. We'll, we'll link up the first one. Say your first book again, because I actually thought it sounded interesting. The Pastoral Care of Women in Late Medieval England. There you go. That'll be on there as well. Um, you guys can find find her on social media, find her um, her writings elsewhere, and we will see you all next week. The Ministry Misfits podcast is a production of Overwhelming Victory Flicks, Overwhelming Victory Radio, and Ministry Misfits Media. Dr. Greg Linville and Andrew Fouts are our executive producers and Brandon Simmons is associate producer. Our music is provided by Morning Light Music and is titled Rain. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can email us at ministrymisfitmedia at gmail.com or by following at ministrymisfit 
on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. You can support Ministry Misfits at anchor.fm forward slash ministry misfits or for FO1C3 credit by going to csrm.org forward slash donate and selecting Andrew Fouts in the campaign menu. To learn more about Overwhelming Victory or to listen to our sister podcast, visit overwhelmingvictory.org.